It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Outspoken with White and Jordan. 100% engagement. It's a total disrespect. Download, stand well back, listen. Jim White and Simon Jordan. I don't see that view. Outspoken with White and Jordan. From the world's biggest sports radio station, Talk Sport. Hello and thanks for downloading Outspoken, the podcast that brings you the very best of our daily talk sports show. Today, myself and Simon discuss Arsenal having an initial bid for Declan Rice turned down. Simon explains why the Premier League need to stop nation states owning football clubs. And we debate protests in horse racing and ask just how effective they are. Well, wasn't it nice to bump into Sir Rod again? Yes, looks very well, doesn't he? Yeah, I, I love his wardrobe, don't you? I mean, where does he get <laughs> yeah. those jackets? Yeah. Um, yeah. He was in with Alan and Ali there. It was terrific chat. Love the guy. One thing I, I, I do really adore about Sir Rod Stewart is everybody doesn't see it in here. Out in the 17th floor, there are many people working on this floor with Simon, myself, Luke, Joe, the rest of us on this show, all the other shows with the boys. And Sir Rod Stewart, I have to say, Simon, had time for everybody on the way downstairs to his car you know it, it never fails to amaze me he wanders there he goes over there he's chatting here a photograph here it's great but I always think with the biggest of stars they operate in that way when you've got the sort of people that aren't big stars that think that they are they're the ones that are a little bit mealy mouthed and full of themselves but the big <laughs> stars yeah. know why they're where they are yes. know what it takes to continue being where they are and also to some extent haven't forgotten what put them where they are and so with all that in mind, they regard the opportunity to make someone's day and to be involved in giving someone a, you know, a feel-good factor by simply acknowledging them as as much a privilege for them as it is for the person that's receiving it. Exactly. And people like Rod Stewart are big, big stars. Yep. recognisable around the world so those are the people that always find the time so it's, it's it's something that should be applauded and appreciated but at the same time I also think it's something that people should do because you know it's a wonderful position to be in such a situation where your talent is recognised and the rewards that have gone with it have put you onto a stage in a, in a superstar bracket where people just want to speak to you and be around you for sure for sure Simon, as of last night, it was my understanding that there was no firm, hard, fast bid in from any club uh, for West Ham's Declan Rice. But in the last few moments, Mr Alex Crook, who does a darn good job here at TalkSport, tells us West Ham have now rejected an opening bid 
for Declan Rice. Um, it's my understanding, Simon, that that opening bid is 80 million plus 10 in add-ons. Yep. So you and I both know the hierarchy at West Ham want north of 100 million. Whether they'll get that or not is another matter. But the process has started. And waiting in the wings, Manchester City. So the bid comes in from Arsenal. Yeah. Uh, that's the opening bid. But as I say, watching it from distance, Manchester City. It's begun to oh, yes. swing into action. I mean, there's two ways of doing this deal, isn't there? There's going and meeting West Ham's expectation and eclipsing the opportunity for someone else to come along and, and get involved and just nicking it straight out from underneath. Here's the deal. We'll do it. We'll close the deal now. And then, of course, you're in a situation with David Sullivan, who I know very well, that that won't be enough, even if you meet his asking price, because he'll then say, right, well, actually, <laughs> I want more because that's the nature of the beast. Yeah. I've got an opportunity. Um, or there's the other side of the argument, which is Arsenal's point of view, which is I'm going to start at 80 million quid and we'll make them work to get to a bigger price rather than land there and watch them work it up from there. Yeah. So 80 million pounds might mean that Arsenal are prepared to go to 90 all in and then 10 million on extras that will be tangible to Arsenal in terms of achievement and revenue against it, Champions League progression or amount of games or whatever else. I think they've got to but hit the magic 100. I think they've got to hit that. Well, maybe they do. But, I mean, I don't think they've got to do anything unless someone else comes in. If Arsenal happen to be, and I know you'll think this is probably unlikely, but if Arsenal are the only game in town at that level, then West Ham are going to have no bleeding choice, are they? I don't think there will be, though. Do you? I don't think there will be. I think, I, think, I think there'll be... There's only going to be a few people at the table. Because yeah. once, once you get into the £80 million price bracket, there's only going to be a few. And they're going who's to be a big... few? Who's in a, who's in a, who do you think is most likely? Well, Arsenal I, will be there, Man City will be there. Well, I would think possibly there might be a consideration from Manchester United. Possibly. Um, um, Manchester City, again, you know, Danny uh, Murphy was making a case for Manchester City and seeing him in that scenario would be such a formidable outcome alongside what they've already got. But uh, Man City aren't aren't this Johnny Splatter cash that people think they are all the time. They will try and find a deal now and they will not be leveraged and they they will not be used as a stalking horse so that everyone can just jack the price up for West Ham. But we'll see if you're starting at 80 million... Um, you would naturally assume that you're going to start moving quite significantly. I mean, I, I you know, my view, I, I don't think it's past 100 million quid. Um, but the market will drive it, won't it? Yeah. I heard from another source last night that the, the Qataris feel that they are closer than they've ever been to actually get in the hands of Manchester United. So you have to think, Simon, as, as you know, the new fixture, the first day fixtures that come out this morning, yeah. everybody thinks... Good God, it's not that actually far away. It really isn't the new season. So one wonders if we're going to get an announcement on that fairly soon. What we do know, Simon, is in spite of them saying last Friday night, uh, if our bid isn't accepted, uh, then it would be time up. We'll, we'll, we'll walk away. They haven't. No, They're they, still there. Well, they didn't, they didn't say they'd walk away. What they said is they wouldn't get involved in any more bids. What they would do is they would leave it on the table and then walk away from getting involved in further discussions about raising the bar and keeping on being put in a situation. Well, look... There are two parts of this. The way that a deal gets done is there's a balance of power. The seller has the power because he's the person that determines the outcome because it's his to sell. The moment you accept a bid, the buyer becomes the powerful one because you've already established in the the seller's already shown his cards. I've accepted it now. I'm ready to go. And the balance of power shifts. And then what happens? Then you have a, a due diligence process and then the price starts to get chipped yeah. and things start to change in the deal. So this deal... I'd. I'd be surprised if this deal, this deal gets concluded any time soon because once you've accepted the bid, then you'll move into a different stage of all manner of delisting it at the same time as establishing all the due diligence that you need to have. Certain as, certain parts of the equation will be slightly different than you anticipated. But then again, 
there are deals that get done because we're talking about the people, specifically the Qataris, that may just turn around and go, we're happy with what we're buying, we know with what we're buying, bang, we want it done in, in 28 days. Sure. I doubt it. The world's most dangerous download. Outspoken with White and Jordan. From the world's biggest sports radio station, Talk Sport. Simon, we're going to discuss this. The annual Premier League meeting yesterday, clubs unanimously agreed to amend the owners and directors test to end fully leveraged buyouts. Now, a leveraged buyout, for those who don't know, and until recently, until I've been mixing with you, Simon, I was one of them that don't know, um, it sees some of the money used to buy clubs secured against the club itself, essentially yeah. lo- loading debt, Simon, to buy the club, yeah. a la the Glazers, a la Burnley, right? A, a la Sunderland. A la Sunderland, okay. Um, so is this long overdue? I, I, I want to start with that one. They've, they've unanimously agreed to amend the... In other words, Manchester United, as it was a unanimous vote, voted to end fully leveraged buyouts, the very one that was used by the Glazers to purchase <laughs> Manchester United. <laughs> Sense of irony there. Look, I mean, you can't have a sustainability scenario where you're putting upon the football world a desire for it to be governed in a certain way with financial fair play and the restrictions of what people can and can't spend and how they manage their finances and then suggest on the way in that leverage purchases that load the businesses with debt is something that you're comfortable with. I don't necessarily agree with the principle of buying businesses without debt is a bad thing or with debt is a bad thing because people buy businesses all the time Why with didn't debt. you do it at Palace? Well, because the quantums were different. You so, went in with your money? Sure, sure. But we can make the argument that with Chelsea, I mean, Chelsea is debt in another guise. It's private equity guys that want to return on their money. So they, they may not have gone in and necessarily borrowed money and secured it against the club's assets... What they've done is they've gone in with an expert. They haven't bought Chelsea for two and a half billion quid so they can sit there and lose two and a half billion quid. They want a return. Private equity guys want a 10% return on their money. So it's a dynamic that's... It's, it's the peculiarities of it are, are not dissimilar in terms of one is loaded debt against the club, another is debt against the private equity guys that want to return on their money. Now, the, it wasn't a full leverage position with Man United because the Glazers put in 200 million of their own money. So the cost implications of buying Man United was 700 million quid. They put 200 million pounds in and they borrowed 500 million pounds. And at no point have Man United ever been in jeopardy in terms of the financial well-being because they've been more than able to afford it. The argument has obviously been from the Man United fans, which is the cost implications of the servicing of the debt has brought about a lack of investment in the football club and a lack of development where that money could have been redeployed. Or the guys could have just taken out big, taken out bigger dividends and been in the same position because it's their business. They probably may not have done that, but notwithstanding that, they could have still done that because it's their football club. Now, if the football fraternity has decided, amongst its wisdom, that it doesn't want it, then that's fine. I'm not against it. I'm not for or against it. I think what, football... what do you think the motivation is for it? To decide um, I unanimously. Think, I think there's a, a variety of motivations. I think it comes in in line with the idea that if you want financial fair play and you want football clubs to be self-sustaining, then you don't really want people being able to buy them and load it with debt and then risking the reality of that football club. Because Burnley could have gone the other way. Burnley could have found themselves in trouble by yeah. loading the set. And you flagged club. that up at the time. I, I flagged it up to the point that it triggered a £65 million repayment of the loan, which they, I think they haven't repaid, they've just refinanced. And... There was a situation if Burnley, which they didn't, if they had not got promoted in the first season, then the challenge would have been afoot. They have got promoted, so that becomes null and void. But it wasn't wrong to flag it. It wasn't wrong to suggest this is something you need to be looked at because a football club that's being bought for 200 million quid that only has 
revenues of less than that and are in jeopardy of dropping out of top leagues is something you should be mindful of when yeah. you're loading it with debt. But yeah. a football club like Man United is just a point of principle. United fans will say, you've had a billion two in interest payments out of this football club that could have been dropped in that football team over the last 16 years. And the fans are not wrong to say that. Well, they're not wrong to say it, but tr- but the bottom line is football is now big business, and big businesses are bought by leveraged transactions. I know, but that's why Twitter the fans are right, by- Sam, and they say the Glazers just want to put a lot of that money in their back pockets yes. as opposed to putting it into the football club. Well, I mean, there is an argument that that, that, stack, that, that the, the lack of development in Old Trafford and the lack of development in the training ground could be leveraged at Manchester United's ownership model and saying, well, why would you have not done that? You could have done that easily. And of course there's 1.2 billion quid that could have gone in a football club. But the other side of the argument is they have already the club's money, not theirs, and I'm very clear that I understand that, has been spent. There's been enormous amounts of money spent at Man United. Yeah. Enormous amounts of money. And what you're advocating for is even more profligacy because the model that they've run for the last 16 years with the Glazers' understanding of that football club, certainly since Ferguson left, has been poor. So there's no... What you'd have been seeing is the Glazers spent more money. If this, if they didn't have these debt payments, they'd have spent more money and bought the same colour of players and found themselves in the same position that they're in now, potentially, with a bigger with a bigger bill okay, on okay. players. I get it. Well, it, it was interesting in itself that they decided to have a vote and the Premier League meeting yesterday, the club unanimously agreed to amend the owners and directors' but this test is what I to end to you. fully leveraged buyers. If you, if you want to change that, all this nonsense about, oh, this club's going to sue that club because they've been relegated and they've got a case to answer for financial fair play doping or whatever else, it's all tosh because they, if they want to change rules, you can see they how can quickly do. they can change rules sure. if they've got a mind to do it. So... On that very topic, and you brought me right to it perfectly, should they now be turning their attention to a ban on state ownership? Should that be next? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Because, you know, if you look at the sports franchises and and sports businesses in America, they do not allow nation states to buy their community assets. Right. right? So why would we? And in Europe, we seem to have a different attitude towards it, and certainly in this country. But here's the thing. I thought that there weren't many of these things going on because according to the Premier League... Newcastle isn't owned by a nation state. It's owned by a independent business inside um, mm-hmm. Saudi Arabia. But now we know that it's one and the same thing, don't we? We know that. We've always known that. But the Premier League said it wasn't. Everybody knows it now, though, don't well, they? Well, of course they do. But Even the po- if, we, if we were to, to, if we were is, to confront Master is, Richard Masters outside the studio today, you know it, Richard, we know it, everybody if I, knows it. If I it. asked Masters now, is the ownership of Newcastle a nation state, I'm willing to wager you that he'd say no. Because we've got degrees of separation from the ownership. We've got this as a sovereign wealth fund. It's an independent business that's being run in an independent fashion. And we'd all say, but that's preposterous balderdash, right? So when we talk about nation states coming around to own football clubs, we've got one in Newcastle, but they've dressed it up as something else. Right. So what does this actually achieve then? Does it mean that we're going to be more forensic in evaluating what a nation state is? Because they will argue to the cows come home, PIF, that it's not a nation state investment, unless, of course, it suits them when they're having a court case in America on the Gulf front, where they acknowledge that they are a nation state ownership model. So would Richard Masters deny it if the Qataris get Manchester United? Well, they've already set that stall out, haven't they? They've said it's not... We all know... We right. know, that's what I'm we saying. We all know that the wealth that's been generated in Middle Eastern situations, predominantly that are buying assets of this significance, are primarily based upon the desire for the Middle East to start to build up relationships that are secondary to just oil. 
right? They want to be able to build up different business opportunities. So we all know it's nation state. And all these guys that are being put up as potential buyers of football clubs are ultimately indexed to the state in some way or another, whether it's because they've created their wealth as a result of it or whether it's because they occupy uh, positions of humongous influence in the governments or whether they are the crown prince of a particular country. We all know it, but they're dressing it up and they'll find a way around it. But as far as optics are concerned and window dressing for... The Premier League to stop Amnesty International and to stop people like this, right? We now have outlawed the idea that a nation state can buy an English asset inside the football pyramid that we now preside over. And then there'll be this bloody argument about what a nation state actually is in terms of the vehicle. And they'll turn around and say, like they've done with PIF, it's not nation state, it's a separate entity. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's so ridiculous, it almost takes your breath away. Yeah. That, the, that, that people sit there and go and have a debate about it. Oh, actually, Newcastle isn't. No, it's not. It's owned by PF. PIF is the nation state. No, it's not. But it is. It's the sovereign wealth fund mm. for the nation state. Mm. But it's not the nation state. Yeah. At that point, you lose the will to live I mean, and let P- that person walk away with their ridiculous notion that it's not. For those who don't know, Simon, simplify it. PIF, the Public Investment Fund, yes. is a wealth fund... Designed to manage the well-being of the, the of the asset value of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Right. Its sole focus in life, it's got 650 billion worth of assets, and it's to preserve and enhance the value and the economic reality of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and Mohammed bin Salman. That's what its focus is. And, and, That's it. And, and you have to think, Newcastle is probably just a start. Of course it is. I mean, ultimately, you're now, you're now looking at skills challenge... And what they're going to do in boxing with their desires. Yeah. You're going to look at a variety of different things. It is ultimately, we've seen golf. Golf has been bought. The, the, the lock, stock and two smoking barrels, it's been bought. It's, been, it's like watching someone buy the Premier League, the FA and UEFA. That's what it's done. And watch this space. These people need to be watched. Not because I have one single scintilla of xenophobia about me, because everybody has the right to buy something. Of course. But we do have to be careful of the ramifications of what we're talking about and what it's being utilised for. Because it's not being utilised for the good of sport. Sport is a vehicle. It's a conduit because they want to have different commercial relationships. They want to move away from just being oil. They want to be an industrial and economic hub to be able to fly in for tourism or to be able to join up that particular part of the world and be even more influential than they are. All of these things is what sport's being used for. So, in other words, they're under the door. They're here already and they'll continue to do it. So, I suppose it begs the question, in what way does it benefit the Premier League clubs banning state ownership? It doesn't. Well, because it, because if we're led to believe it's not going on, which it well, is. Well, that that's the argument that gets bounded around. Where would you money? Where would you rather have this money? You know, where would this? Because you'd rather have it. The Premier League would say we'd rather have this dough being invested in our Premier League than invested in Serie A yeah. or La Liga. Right. But that then becomes the other side of the argument where we turn around and say, yeah, but we can't have this kind of ownership. It has a destructive feel to it in terms of the economic drip down effect of their not needing to be here for economic returns. They, if they didn't have to have some governance, if Newcastle weren't put under financial fair play, they'd set the place on fire financially by being prepared to do whatever they want. And that would have a ramification upon everybody else because everybody else would have the Newcastle effect of what they're prepared to pay players, what the transfer market would become. Yeah. Because the Saudis would say, we want Newcastle to be the biggest club in world football. And, and the only reason that they're stopped from doing that yeah. is because of financial governance. That's why it's so important that Man City clear themselves or suffer the consequences so that we can see what really is going on and that really that the controls are in place. Because the only reason we need controls is not to remove capitalism not to remove investment yeah but it's to protect 
the value of the football business so that everyone can survive and it doesn't kill every single football club that doesn't have a billionaire owning it. Exactly. There's much more balance, much more equilibrium. Simon, it's Thursday the 15th of June 2023. Come this day 2033, what do you think the ownership picture in the Premier League will look like? A decade on... Well, again, if we were to look back at the ownership models of 2013 and 2003 and take it in 10-year cycles, there would be a massive departure. I think I did this exercise a couple of years ago about how many English owners we had when I got promoted and the, the bulk of people owned the Premier League football clubs at that time were English. And that's changed dramatically now. Sure. Now you've got massive American investment. Yeah. You've got Middle East investment. On one hand, it shows you the recognisability and the value of our Premier League the other hand, it shows the jeopardy of a globalised world and how it can affect our our sport from a good point of view because we get some of the best players and the quality of football goes up from, from a bad point of view that the economics fly out the window mm. and it becomes a gatekeeper for other people's agenda and it doesn't become sport anymore. Do you think in 10 years there'll be any English owners in the Premier League? Yes, because I think with the uniqueness of the pyramid system that's just been illustrated by Luton that you will have that situation where if we can maintain... They'll be clinging on. They might be, but if, we, if we're seeing an increase in revenue since the championship, if they can use this leverage they've got with the threat of the independent regulator to wring more money out of the Premier League, then they can keep the situation where they can st still build sides that can come out of the championship that aren't just sides that have come down from the Premier League, like Luton's, right. like Sheffield United. I know Sheffield United is owned yeah. by a Middle Eastern guy, but other football clubs that are smaller. So, yes... But I think you'd look at a 90-10 ratio that 90% of the Premier League will be owned, tragically, by other people that aren't indigenous to this country. Welcome to the Coliseum of Confrontation. Outspoken with White and Jordan. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We're talking... Uh, 
A change of uh, subject at this stage. We're talking about the recent protests we've seen in sport, most notably uh, the world of horse racing by the organisation Animal Rising. And now we know this morning, this Thursday morning, the British Horse Racing Authority has rejected Animal Rising's offer to cease to stop its racecourse protests this summer in exchange for the activist group being granted a televised debate. Animal Rights said to the BHA, all right, have a debate with us live on one of the channels, whether it's Sky, whether it's Channel 4, whatever the channel, and we'll have it out live on air. Thereafter, we will no longer protest. Animal Rising has already tried to prevent the Grand National and the Derby taking place this year. And there are fears it will now target this summer's racing highlight, the five-day Royal Ascot meeting, which starts on Tuesday, as well as the Greyhound Derby at Toaster on July the 1st. Uh, Nathan McGovern uh, is with Animal Rising. He's part of the organisation and he joins us live this morning. Uh, Nathan, good morning. Oh, yeah. Pleasure to be here, Jim. Pleasure to be here, Simon. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Uh, we are live in talk sport. So, you know, th- feel free to be uh, as robust as anything you like here in this discussion. Did you honestly expect the BHA to say, yep, yeah, thumbs up. We'll see you in a television studio. We'll have this out. Well, you know, that's what we would have hoped for, you know, the the BHA, you know, the Jockey Club, uh, you know, likes of Kevin Blake, Nick Look have been, you know, very forward, you know, on social media um, and sometimes, you know, on interview, you know, trying to defend their case. And what we're saying to them is, here is your opportunity to come, you know, we'll have a mediator in the middle of this. The British public are really, really interested in this debate and let's have it out. If they'd said yes, yeah, we'll see you in a TV studio, we'll have this debate, would you have lived up to your side of the bargain? No more protests. So we, we would definitely not have gone to Royal Ascot next week uh, if that had been the case, you know, and that offer is still on the table. If they come back to us on Monday morning or 20, 23.59 on Monday night and say, we're going to have this debate, we will turn around and say, all right, we'll have this and we're not going to be going to Royal Ascot. And even if you felt on points you'd lost the debate, you still wouldn't protest after that? Yeah, because what this is really about is about having a national conversation about our broken relationship with other animals and the natural world. You know, there, there's two aims that we have here, you know, with these actions, you know, at the race courses. One, obviously, to protect the horses and, and the dogs, as you mentioned, at Toaster. But two is, is crucially to have this wider conversation that I think the British public really does want to have. It's certainly a topic that doesn't go away, Simon. Mm. And here we have Nathan from, from Animal Rising saying, yeah, if, if they would have agreed to the debate, we wouldn't protest anymore. Do you, do you think that uh, they would live up to their side of the deal? Well, I don't know. I doubt it. Um, but I also don't know quite who you would think you are to dictate to somebody w- what you will and won't do and what they should and shouldn't do. If I was in their position, I'd be in the same situation. A lot of people... I don't think there's a national demand for this particular debate, by the way. Um, but I do think there's a lot of people, me included, that have empathy with some of the causes that are out there, you're all joined up in your thinking. This is not just about animals. This is a whole belief system that goes from net zero to sustainability through to animal welfare. And I do have empathy with some of the observations that are being made. I don't have a scintilla of respect for the method of delivery, but I do empathise with some of the scenarios. Now, there is an argument that would be advanced by these guys that one horse dies every day during racing. There's another argument to be put forward that these animals are bred specifically explicitly for that cause and some of them wouldn't even exist if it wasn't for the nature of racing there's also an argument to suggest that the well-being and treatment of these horses given it's the king's sport is treated in such a fashion that these horses are treated so wonderfully 
There's another argument that you would advance that suggests that ultimately they're being bred for humans to be able to be utilised by humans for sport and engagements. Um, And I understand all those arguments, but I do not concur, I do not appreciate, I do not respect the methods that you guys deploy. I think you lose the argument by that basis. If I were in the BHA's shoes, I wouldn't be acquiescing to your absurd assumption, assumption that you can suggest that the, the, the nature of engagement i.e. we'll debate you in a forum that we see fit for our benefit because we love the media, we know the media helps us with our calls, and tragically, with the need for content from media, you get that opportunity. I mean, disruption, as Simon says, disruption is your main tactic, isn't it? Now, that doesn't win over um, public sympathy. I'd actually like to correct you on that. So non-violent direct action has two equally important sides to it. One is disruption, and two is dialogue, conversation, and debate. You don't get one without the other. You know, that's imagine, you know, back in March, if we'd gone to the BHA and, you know, made this offer, they wouldn't even have responded to the email, would they? You know, let, let's be honest with ourselves. But you need disruption to drive the tension, which drives the debate and the conversation, not just here in studios like this, but at dinner tables in pubs across the country. Without a disruption, you do not get the dialogue. A reasonable level of disruption, not a consistent and un, unabridged campaign. You know, we can make the argument that, a horse died recently because of your tactics. But that won't suit your argument. You'll suggest that the bigger picture prevails. But as a matter of course, because of the delays that you guys created uh, on a recent event, and I'm interested that you pick these middle-class environments to go to protest in and that you don't go to places like the Appleby Horse Fair and protest there. Well, what we need to do is accept the, you know, you, know, you guys probably aren't going to cover us if we go to Appleby Horse Fair. You're not going to have the national conversation that I have mentioned, you know, when we go to events like the Grand National, like the Epsom Derby, you know, like the Greyhound races in in Toaster coming up quite soon. That is where we're actually going to drive through this conversation. Showpiece events. Yeah, exactly. You know, I'm I'm not going to shy away from the fact that it is those events that we go to and that drives the conversation more than some other events. You know, that is a critical part about this, of getting everyone to be talking about the issue. And I'm, I'm not going to lie. No, no, that's your tactics and they work. Has anything I, I don't changed? Think, I don't anything. think you bring the audience with you, though. That's uh, that's the alternate side of the argument. Apart from the publicity you are getting, uh, uh, there are those, and you'll be aware of this. That would say Talksport, other news channels shouldn't give you a news platform, shouldn't give you a platform of any sort. That would be me saying that, by the way. <laughs> I would disagree with that. With my background, I would say the platform is vitally important because the debate's important. Yeah, but Simon says it's how you go about it tactically, and you're out to disrupt. And people who regularly go to these race meetings do it because they love doing it. And they don't want to see people like you climb fences and disrupt what they want to watch. Because so far, Nathan, with all due respect, apart from the publicity, where's it got you? Well, it's, it's actually fantastic you asked that, Jim. So Monday morning after the Grand National, there was a YouGov poll um, asking the question, do Britons find the Grand National cruel? We saw 54% of us come out and say, yes, we do find the Grand National cruel. That's an increase on last year. Just yesterday at the World uh, Horse Welfare Conference, you know, on a panel that Julie, the the, the uh, CEO of the BHA, was part of, um, they you know brought out YouGov research that you know they'd conducted themselves, they commissioned, so that twenty percent of people in this country do not accept the use of horses for sport. That's thirteen and a half, fourteen million people, and a further forty-two percent of people said that they would not consider watching the horse racing until welfare measures were improved. And I think it's important to talk about welfare and say, you know. Welfare is not an acceptable metric by which to judge, you know, horse racing. You know, we should be judging it by are the animals allowed to be have freedom? Are they allowed to live lives that they would not otherwise live had they not been forced into the racing industry? You know, we talk about statistics like that, 
and there is undoubtedly a going to be an impact for the racing industry, which, I, which means that they probably wouldn't, if they weren't, if there wasn't a racing industry, then these horses wouldn't be bred, would they? And I think it's tragic we actually think like that, Simon, that we think, you know, animals only have value if there is human use to them. And I think we need to take a bigger picture of you. If well, you want to debate the hierarchical structure of how animals go into the food chain and how animals come into the life of human beings, yet when we talk about animals like dogs that are under the jurisdiction of human beings, fed by human beings and taken to vets and looked after by human beings, that argument seems to me to be absolutely ridiculous about the hierarchical structure of the animal kingdom against the human interaction with it. It just seems like a ridiculous, immature, childish argument that doesn't make any sense except in particular situations like horse racing. Nathan, now, now the BHA have said no thanks to a live televised debate, what are you going to get up to this summer? So this time we're, we're not ruling out the possibility of disrupting Royal Ascot. You know, that offer is still on the table, not just for the BHA, because let's be honest, a lot of horse racing fans really don't think the BHA represents them that well. So that offer is there true. for the representatives of the industry. You know, the jockey club, if they decide to take it up, Kevin Blake, Nick Luck, anyone who the racing industry think represents them. But as for the rest of the summer, you know, we said yesterday we are going to be at the Greyhound Derby final in Toaster. This is not merely just about horses. It's not merely just about greyhounds. It's about our relationship with all animals. And that's why we'll, we'll be there at Toaster attempting to cause disruption and ultimately make sure that, you know, the greyhounds aren't put in harm's way and don't want, run in the Derby. Hard-edged, hard-nosed, hard to beat. Outspoken with White and Jordan. Thanks for listening to Outspoken with White and Jordan. Please leave us a review wherever you get your podcast. We'll be back each weekday to bring you the best of the show. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.